Fish Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Aram Leighton. It's been a while. I am finally happy to be back. Sorry I was gone for so long, but it's going to be worth the wait now as I have Burke Ranger of 2080 Baseball. Of course, Burke, you focus on the draft, and we have the draft sneaking up on us a little bit in June. I want to talk to you about last year's draft, of course, and this year's draft as you guys just released that mock draft at 2080 Baseball. So, Burke, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having having me on. Uh, this is an exciting time of the year. It's a little hectic. Uh, we're like a month out from the draft, and every time I, I say that, I give myself a little anxiety because there's so much work to do on, in the next 30 days, but looking forward to it. It's crazy how fast it's it snuck up on us here because I feel like we were just talking about last year's draft with the guys like Connor Scott and Will Banfield, and those guys, I, I feel like they just are getting their feet wet, which they are, but here we are in another cycle, which you've been doing a lot of coverage on. And you guys, like I said before, just released a mock draft where you had the Marlins taking CJ Abrams fourth, which we'll get into. I want to start off now, though, talking about last year's draft. You told me off the air that you've seen uh, a lot of the guys that the Marlins took early uh, pretty extensively. And of course, I want to start with the Marlins' first selection in the draft, the high school uh, hitter, Connor Scott. What did you think of that pick there? I know some people are already... Uh, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, and and it's it's hard to make a judgment this early. But when they made the pick in that time, can you remember what you thought of that pick at the at the moment? Yes. So I think both those picks, both their first two picks, were were kind of high risk, high reward type picks. And I think we're seeing some of the the growing pains that that you might expect them to have in pro ball. So Scott missed some some time over the summer leading up to the draft. Uh, he had his appendix removed, so he wasn't at all the showcase events. Um, but he had a lot of talent, and that was evident at the ones that he did participate in. So his carrying tool is his plus to double plus speed. Um, he was running like sub four ones down the line uh, from the left side. He's kind of got an old school feel, like he doesn't wear batting gloves. I don't know if he if he's since started using them in pro ball. Uh, he's kind of a tall, lengthy, awkward looking kid sometimes, or at least he was at the time. Um, doesn't wear batting gloves, but he has feel for the barrel and he, and a line drive swing. Um, it's there's some length in the swing, but he's able to like he's got good bat speed uh, and impressive hand eye coordination to to find the barrel more often than not. So he's he flashed average raw power during the showcase circuit. Um, I think he has room to to fill out and add more strength. Um, his defensive game, he was a little raw there he as a center fielder um but he had the tools there like with the speed he had, he had good arm strength he used to be a pitcher who, who would throw in the low 90s uh just wasn't very instinctual in center field so haven't haven't checked in on him in pro ball to see if if he's gotten any any better with the bat um i did see that he's struggling to hit the ball uh consistently um in it, it this year so far so i'd be interested to see uh, checking in with with Adam McIntyre of our pro evaluator to see um, if he's got to look at him to see if if he's made any adjustments that that we've been able to identify. And Adam's a guy I've actually had on the show a lot in the past, and and he scouted them pretty extensively as well. And he he had he shared a lot of the same sentiments about Connor Scott. He likes, of course, like everyone does, his tools, but he does just look blatantly overmatched right now. In the minor leagues, of course, he's very young, just coming straight out of high school. But like you said, the swing gets a little long. It seems like he's cheating a little bit. But 
even Kyle Tucker, who he draws a lot of comparisons to, hit 210 in his first pro season. So you have that learning curve. Right. But with guys like that, though, with the 13th pick, do, do you think he was worth taking a chance with those two super high-risk guys, or, or would you have selected someone else at that pick? I, I didn't mind the pick. I do think he's high-risk, high-reward, and he was kind of rising up draft boards all year. And I, th- I think, if I recall, in the month leading up to the draft, everyone had him linked to, to the Marlins. So I don't think That's it correct. was a surprise at the time. Um, what, what was kind of a surprise is that if you followed that pick up with Will Banfield, who is who was another guy that we knew was high-risk, um, Banfield was a guy like he he was an advanced catcher, a re- advanced receiver at the high school level. Um, he had caught like Ethan Hankins and Kamar Rocker on the, on their summer team, so not your average catcher who is not used to handling these blue chip elite talents. Um, it, he moves he moved really well behind the dish. Um, he, he had a plus arm, loves loves to show off the arm. The, the question on him is whether or not he'd be able to hit a pro ball. And the track record for prep catchers is, is just not good in the draft. Um, not a lot of them develop um, that hit tool because it's really hard for, for someone to learn the catching position at such a young age while still uh, developing the hit tool. And I think we're seeing Banfield in pro ball swinging and missing a lot, which is something that w- people were worried about. So the pick of Scott itself, I, I don't think is bad in and of itself. Um, but I think if you pick someone with that type of risk profile early, you got to follow it up with, with someone who has safety or at least some perceived safety, like a, a college bat. Uh, so it, yeah. it seems like they knew the state of the farm system. It was, it was at a point where it was pretty low by bottom of the league. Of course, they've made a lot of improvements to that system, but it seemed like they wanted to take a few flyers on guys that could or could pan out or could not, but they could end up being that superstar type of player. But that's the thing is, as you're saying now, it's a lot of risk there. And yeah. out of, out of those three guys, who do you think has the highest floor? Uh, would it be just because of the allure Connor Scott, or is it a guy like Will Banfield because at least his glove could potentially just take him to be a backup catcher. Cause there's not really a lot of pressure on those guys to hit the ball. As you look at Jeff Mathis who played for the Marlins for several years. Yeah, I, I think it would be Banfield only because the glove is so advanced, the receiving skills are so advanced, and that's there's guys in college that I scout that just don't have uh, that type of, of ability behind the plate defensively that that Banfield has. He just, he stood out as an elite defensive catcher at the high school level. Now the bat may never come around. There was a guy um, a couple years ago, Cooper Johnson, who is a very similar type of defensive profile to Will Banfield. Um, who ended up going to school, went to Ole Miss, and he's draft eligible this year now as a junior, and he he will get drafted, but it won't be anywhere near he would have gotten drafted out of high school because he the bat never took a step forward in college. Um, so had Will Banfield gone to like Vanderbilt and and kind of proven he could have could handle that type of pitching uh, at the plate, then then he could have been a first rounder in in, in two years from now. Um, but you know he he got paid he he got really good money for where for where he was picked so um i'm i'm thinking in terms of the highest floor because of that defensive ability i, I do i do think he would he would have that highest floor cuz worst case scenario he can still catch even if even if you're just counting the bat as a wash 
And the, I, I, like you mentioned before, the Marlins were heavily linked to Connor Scott. It was almost like you could pencil him in at 13, which is pretty rare um, right. to have that in the in the MLB draft because it's usually a mystery. It makes your guys' job pretty hard with these mock drafts. But I had kind of touched on it before, but I, I'm curious because I know a lot of a lot of fans felt that the Marlins maybe should have went with a college bat, a more advanced college bat at that pick. Uh, who might have you selected other than Connor Scott at that pick? Let's see. I need to. I need to go back and try to remember. I know I'm challenging you. I I'm challenging you right now. I know I, I kind of caught you off guard there, but um, no, that's the fine. one thing I think of a, a, a lot is is who else could they have gotten other than Connor Scott? Because I feel like a lot of frustrated Marlins fans are already somewhat feeling like the Marlins missed again on a pick, uh, even though it's really early for this kid. But you look at guys that went after Connor Scott. You had guys like uh, Matthew Libertor, a pitcher. You could have got Brady Singer, another pitcher. You could have gotten Nolan Gorman, a guy who's raking so far uh, right. in the minor leagues. And that's one of the more advanced bats at the high school level. He's another high school guy. But is that kind of just hindsight where you're looking at guys like, oh, the Marlins should have got Nolan Gorman or they should have went after one of these arms? Or did they kind of take a flyer on Scott and Gorman might have been the safer pick? Well, Gorman had some had some questions on him at the time uh, leading up to the draft in the spring. There was a highly scouted event called the NHSI in North Carolina and the National High School in- Invitational held by USA Baseball. And, and Gorman showed up to that. First of all, Gorman did great the entire summer leading up to the draft, but then goes to this event. And we know that he has some of the best raw power in the high school class. Um and he's a good hitter, really quick hands, but we're seeing him like swing through 80 miles per hour right down the middle. And everyone's like, what's going on with Nolan Gorman? Now, I think there was a little bit of an overreaction that thinking, well, if he can't hit 80, um, what's he going to do in pro ball? He gets the pro ball and hits a ton of home runs in his, his first like half season of a professional baseball. Um, so I think there's a lot of people kicking themselves saying they they wish they would have taken Nolan Gorman uh, before 19th overall if you're thinking about like a college bat that the next two i think college bats that got selected last year were trevor larnock out of oregon state and then nico and larnock had a big spring a lot of power um, but wasn't seen as really an advanced bat he didn't take off until his junior year nico horner was someone who is like considered a, a high floor type player with a, a fairly limited ceiling and he's already kind of exceeding expectations in pro ball where people thought he would be. So, uh, you know, just, I got the impression that the Marlins were, were, you know, using these, these picks as lottery tickets and, and hoping that it would pan out. Um, and these guys, it's, it's way too early to write them off, of course. So they could reach their full potential. Connor Scott still, still has a lot of potential. Um, and it takes it takes a while for for eighteen year olds to adjust to pro ball. So uh, it's a little too little too premature to say to to be looking with hindsight as as to who they should have picked. But you know, I'd probably be doing the same thing if I were a fan as well. So I get it. Yeah, I definitely understand it. It's something I, I see in my mentions a lot. But like you, like you mentioned, something that's very important is these kids are still teenagers. So yeah. there, there's there's twenty three, twenty four year olds that make strides in the minor leagues. So let alone a teenager that can have something click at that level, I think he's still adjusting to the culture shock that is going from 
mid-80s high school pitching to guys throwing 90 plus and starting to locate it a little better it's and throwing three pitches for a strike it's tough and the, the, the thing that a lot of people also forget is that surprisingly the Marlins threw their draft picks kind of into into single a last year right away right it would seem like almost I, I don't know if I agreed with the move it, it at the end of the day, it doesn't matter too much, but uh, they were almost just throwing them to the wolves and saying struggle and learn from it. And I, I guess that's fine, uh, but of course they were going to struggle. And as we're going now through this season, I think if if he hits 150 the entire season, then you have a cause of a little concern. But if he continues to show that he's developing an approach at the plate, I, which I think is going to happen, then those tools start to come into play. And like you mentioned, he's got potentially double plus speed. And he's a guy that he doesn't even have to hit 330 or even 300 for those tools to come into play. So uh, that that's a guy that I think the Marlins should be excited about and Marlins fans should be excited about and just be patient with. And uh, my one question for you is, in your experience, how often do these high school bats t- tend to struggle like this in the beginning? And at what point do you start to get a little concerned? I, I think you – you assess their entire first full professional season. So I wouldn't give whatever happened last year, much stock. Um, and, and even through the first month of the season, I wouldn't hit the panic button. If you get until this end of this first full season, you have a significant enough sample to look and be like, well, this guy is not hitting for any power. <laughs> um, not the power we projected, you know, projecting high school bats is the toughest part of evaluating um, at least for me, because it, you're watching these guys play often against guys that will never play professional baseball, um, the the pitchers, that is. So you're watching a pitcher throw 80 miles per hour down the middle that he's going to go to to random four-year school on a biology scholarship, not, not a baseball scholarship. Um, so even if we see a guy just tee off, tee off on those pitches – it's, it's difficult to project that out into professional baseball when he could be facing an, an 18-year-old from the Dominican Republic who's, who's busting 98 inside. Um, so you really try to look at how they handle their at-bats, their, their knowledge of the strike zone. Do they make adjustments uh, within the at-bat? Um, so, yeah, both of these guys were pretty young for their, for their level last year, and I think they're young for their level this year. And in, are they in, they're in low A right now as well, right? Yes. So, so yeah, wouldn't hit the panic button, but at, if at the end of the year they have OPSs around 500, 600, then, then it might be cause for concern. Um, but even if they have to repeat a level, it's not the end of the world. That That's happened to a few guys out of high school uh, and it, it doesn't end their, their development. It just, you know, it, it stunts it for one year. But a guy like Osiris Johnson, who, who I think is hitting the best between all of them, he didn't even turn 18 until after his after his after last season in in like October. So he was really he was like 17 and a half when he got drafted. Didn't didn't turn 18 until October. So uh, him, I would be even a little more patient with because he's going to be young for for every level for the next several years. And unfortunately, he actually went down with an injury, uh, and he's going to be out for the season, which was which was a shame because he was looking like uh, he was flashing the most power out of all those young guys in the brief stint last year. But the silver lining is, like you said, he's so young that one year 
uh, missing one year is not the end of the world and he'll still be probably one of the youngest guys in single a next year uh, when he's in Clinton, Iowa, which is what we expect. Uh, but yeah, it definitely was a tough blow to ha- to have him on the shelf. But speaking of, of what you were saying about making it hard to scout high school players based on their competition, you recently went to a tournament that makes it a little easier, right? In Cary, yeah. North Carolina, I believe is where it was. Yep. And um, it's all of the best or many of the best high school baseball teams in the country. And so you're finally able to see elite talent versus elite talent and a lot of these guys that you're scouting. And that is actually where you scouted several potential Marlins draft picks for this upcoming draft in June. I wanted to hear a little bit of, of who impressed you the most from there, uh, whether it was a guy that might get selected later in the draft but, but just exceeded your expectations. Or, and then we'll get in a little bit uh, about what, those guys that the Marlins could potentially take it for and, and what you thought good and bad on those guys. Yeah, great. Yeah, sure. Um, so that event is the, the National High School Invitational, NHSI is what it's often called. And yeah, it's it's probably my favorite event of the year uh, because it they invite 16 teams th- from throughout the country, uh, most of which are, are powerhouses at the high school level, like Orange Lutheran has, has won this thing three times in a row. Uh, La Mirada in California is another big powerhouse. IMG Academy was there this year. Uh, which is essentially a professional baseball development academy in Florida for high school baseball or high school athletes. Um, And what's great about it is it's like a smaller intimate setting. You're seeing these kids play in full games in a competitive environment. Uh, Most of these guys I've had experience with over the summer at showcase settings. Uh, Some of those showcases are um, where they're playing just a couple innings at a time. And, I, and you're not seeing you're seeing one you're seeing a pitcher throw one inning as hard as he can. You're not seeing his pitchability. You're not seeing how he's able to pace himself throughout the course of a start. And the hitters themselves, you're only seeing an, an at bat or two. But these events, you're seeing four games, four full games. You get to see how they interact with their teammates. Um, you get to see them play a defensive position for for seven innings to see. Are they are they backing up the bases correctly? You're seeing that you get more opportunities to see them make the throws in the hole, um, things you don't always see at the showcase setting. So for this particular year, it, it was kind of loaded with talent, uh, several potential first rounders there, um, two at the top that I could see as potential like top 10 picks would be uh, C.J. Abrams out of Blessed Trinity Catholic. Um, he's a shortstop in Georgia. Um and then the other is Riley Green, an outfielder from Haggerty High School in Florida. So both those guys, again, I, I, I was able to see probably 50 or so plate appearances so far from them in the draft cycle. But the most beneficial part is getting the spring look and seeing four games of how they're doing for an entire game in a competitive setting. And you mentioned you saw C.J. Abrams and Riley Green, two guys that have been pretty heavily connected to the Marlins potential pick at four. Uh, I think this year is going to be a little less predictable as, as last year with Connor Scott, but it's two guys that a lot of people have implied could be a potential pick for the Marlins and you guys at 2080 baseball, who, when you just released your mock draft this week, had the Marlins taking Abrams at four, uh, which wouldn't surprise very many people at all. You mentioned you saw him. I, I've seen some video from you guys. You guys provide some really good video, uh, which makes it easy for us at home to be able to 
see a little bit and give our own opinion on these guys. Obviously, you know better than I do, but from what I saw, you, you had mentioned to me off the air that he's hitting too many ground balls. It seems mm-hmm. like he's he's drifting a little bit. I don't know if it's because of, like we were mentioning before, the slower velocity, maybe he's struggling to stay back on it, or it's the opposite and he's cheating forward because he, he feels like he can't get you know his the barrel down in time. So what what's your worry with him? I know you had mentioned that he was hitting a lot of ground balls. Uh, when I looked at that video, it seemed like he was struggling to stay centered and struggling to stay in his legs and – no one's expecting him to hit for power, and, and ultimately hitting balls on the ground isn't the worst thing in the world, but for a guy that's – you're hoping to stick at shortstop, especially with the Marlins who don't have very many shortstop, if at all, any legitimate shortstop prospects in their organization. How important is it for him to figure that out and, and start to learn to drive the ball gap to gap, and is that something that you think could, could end up affecting his potential to go at that early in the draft? It could, it could, it could, because if I saw it and I've, I've been seeing it in these events, I'm sure other evaluators have seen that he's, he puts the ball on the ground a lot. Now I want to back up for a second um, for some additional context. So uh, the first time I saw Abrams was at PG national. So for, for listeners that don't, that aren't as obsessed with, uh, as I am with the draft cycle, I'm going to ramble here for a minute. So the draft is held in early June every year. And then literally like a, a week later, perfect game holds a national showcase, um, which kicks off the cycle for that next group of high school kids. So you really don't have much time to, to kind of catch your breath. And this year it was at Tropicana field uh, in St. Petersburg. There's like 300 kids there. Um, they play from like 8 AM to 11 PM. So really long days, but the productive days, um, but where I'm going with this is that on the very first pitch of that showcase, so the very first pitch of this cycle, this draft cycle, CJ Abrams drives the ball to the right field gap and then just glides around the bases for a triple in like 11, 11 seconds. So um, he was a known commodity, but this was kind of my first experience with him. And I, I definitely sat up and t- took notice. Now, since then, I, I, I still think he's a guy who excels at putting the bat on the ball. Um, I think he's going to be a high contact hitter when he gets the pro ball and those metrics start to be evaluated. Um, he's got above average bat speed, um, but that stays kind of in the zone a long time due to his swing path. Um, if there is a nit to pick and and there is on every draftee, not named Adley Rutschman, um, it's that he, he does put the ball on the ground too often. Now, when you have like 70 or 80 speed, like, like Abrams does, and you're playing against high school competition, that's not a bad strategy because it'll work out more times than not. Um, but it's not, it's not that I necessarily think it's intentional uh, because w- when he gets the pro ball, that's certainly not going to be a strategy that he can employ there. Um, it happens when he gets caught out on his, on his front foot and he gets out of balance and he kind of rolls over weak ground balls to second base. So those are going to be outs in professional ball. Uh, no matter how fast you are. But between those various events that I've seen him over the last 10, 11 months, I I know he can drive the ball. I've seen it. I've seen the power. I, power is never going to be an, a strength of his, um, but to be an impactful major leaguer, he does need to drive the ball in the gaps more often and let that speed really play on the bases. He's capable of doing it. I've seen him do it against premium velocity. Um, he just needs to get to it more often. Um, and I'm confident that like 
any decent professional development, professional player development department can bring that out in them. So not really worried about it long-term. It is just kind of a head scratcher why it happens um, in these showcase settings. And I, I just think it's a, a matter of that timing not being synced up due to the a wide variance of the types of pitchers he's facing. So sometimes he will face 95. Sometimes he'll face these guys throwing 70 miles per hour, even at these premier showcase events where, yeah, you're going to be out front on that. When, when this guy's number one starter, his fastball looks like a changeup compared to Brendan Malone, who you just faced in your previous start. And did he show any, uh, any struggles with catching up to that mid nineties fastball from when you saw him, if, if you got much of a sample size of that? I ha- yeah, I've gotten a, a good a good sample of it, and he doesn't. He's got very quick hands. Um, I think he does better when he's facing better velocity. I think where he's where he's struggling and rolling over balls is getting ca- getting caught out front, particularly on off speed stuff against lefties. So lefty on lefty, I think could could be an issue for him in pro ball, um, as it is for a lot of guys. But it, it's getting caught out on that front foot and rolling over a weak ground ball to second base, that's that's where I see his weakness or, or something he needs to work on. And I feel like that might be almost a refreshing issue for the Marlins to have with a prospect because it seems like they have a lot of uh, swing and miss guys within the organization. Of course, we've seen as Willis Brinson just got sent down. Uh, Monty Harrison is another guy who they're really high on but led all of professional baseball in strikeouts last year. Uh, there, there's a lot of swing and miss guys – throughout the organization uh, and it might it might be refreshing to have a guy that puts the bat on the ball and ultimately you have to work on some other things but yeah you look at another guy like Riley Green he starts to fit that swing and miss profile uh, I could guess that when we, when we exchanged some messages about some of the videos I saw just from one at bat that I saw from him it, it seemed like he got very long uh, it seemed like he had a lot of those typical issues you see from a big uh, high school hitter uh, and a lot of the issues that you see with some of these guys like Monty Harrison and Lewis Brinson. Uh, that seems like something the Marlins might not need in their organization right now, another uh, high-volume strikeout guy. But I'll let you uh, tell me what you think because I could be off on this one. Obviously, you've seen a lot more of him. Uh, and I'm not trying to knock the kid down at all. Of course, that's the hard part about this is these kids yeah. are all extremely talented, but – when it comes to using your number four overall pick, you got to be pretty nitpicky here. And what do you think of Riley Green and, and what are your concerns? And are those concerns uh, impactful enough to where you don't take a chance on him at four? So, so just like at Abrams, I have seen a ton of Green. Uh, he was at PG National. He was at Under Armour, All-American game in Chicago at Wrigley Field. Um, he was on the USA Baseball 18 and under team. And then most recently at NHSI, um, he's got one of the best hit tools in the high school class. The left-handed swing is so smooth. It's a natural uppercut swing built to elevate. Um, now, there is some length in the swing for sure, but that that plus bat speed helps to mitigate and handling premium velocity. Uh, so premium velocity for him hasn't been an issue that I've seen um, despite the length in the swing. Uh, the ball jumps off the bat. Um, He's got great plate coverage to get the balls on the outer half. He uses the whole field. I've seen him just flip 95 the other way on a rope. And then I've seen him punish mistakes on the inner half for some of the longest home high school home runs I've ever seen. It, it's, it's plus raw power, uh, and he does get to it in games. 
um in my my recent view at nhsi he was just okay like i think he went like three for 13 swung through a lot of balls he should have hit um so it was frustrating to see him not square up a ball that's 82 and just belt high um there was swing and miss um more than you would typically see for someone that you would call the best high school bat in the class like like Jared Kellenick and, and Bryce Terrain didn't do that last year. But as I mentioned earlier, Norlin, Nolan Gorman did at NHSI and then gets into pro ball and just rakes. Um, now, Green and Gorman are very different, but the point of what I'm trying to say is that I'm I'm not going to blast Green too much for this so-so viewing because I've, because I've seen him great so many times. And I'm sure, I'm sure other, and you know, if I've seen him this many times, and I'm just the guy who works for a website. Um, these scouting professional and player development evaluators have seen him more often. So they've gotten a sense for, for how good the bat could be. Um, Bradley Green's issues are more on the defensive side in, in that you just don't know where he's going to play as a pro. Um, he plays center field for his high school and does okay there. But he's kind of a limited athlete. Um, and I say that and he stole like five bases in this event, but most of them are just taking advantage of below average college or high school uh, pitching and catching. Um, he's got a below average arm. So his future is limited to a corner and it's most likely left field or first base. He played some first base for team USA and looked very good there, despite I'm sure never playing that position for his high school team. They're not going to stick him at, at first, but it might be where he ends up as a pro. And then, then he doesn't need to worry about, um, holding his weight down, he can he can develop into this big slugger that I think he he could end up being. Um, he's got a swing pass similar to like Cody Bellinger, uh, not nearly as athletic, but I think he has that type of offensive ceiling. So, another question I'd have for you then, because you guys you guys say that he, it would probably be a little bit of a reach. You know, there's still a little bit of time, but for the Marlins to take him at four. Uh, but you guys did say in, in in your mock draft that he could be in play at five to the Tigers. So we've seen some crazier things, right? And that's if that's a guy that the Marlins like. I mean, you almost just sold me on him now when I was saying before that, uh, that there's some concerns I have with his swing and miss. But if you're saying he's driving the ball over the field, uh, that that's something that is pretty advanced for a, a power hitter at the high school level to be able to flip 95 over the shortstop's head. Uh, so that's something that could turn into a, a really impressive hit tool, like you said. But going back to, to Abrams at four, mm -hmm. if you're the Marlins, why take uh, C.J. Abrams over Bryson Stott, a guy that's proven to absolutely rake at the college level? Uh, the only reason I'm asking this is because we were talking about those volatile lottery ticket type picks. I'm not saying C.J. Abrams is as much of a lottery ticket as some of the picks last year, but – and I'm not saying Bryson Stotts can't miss, but uh, it seems like you know you have a little bit more of a, a higher floor with a college bat that's proven to to be able to hit the ball at, at the pretty high level in college. So why do you take a guy like Abrams at four over Bryson Stott like you guys have slated in this mock draft? Yeah, and so I think I think it's important to note for this first iteration of our mock draft, uh, we split these teams up between Nick Falaris and myself. He and I do the the amateur coverage for 2080 baseball. 
in this first one, we're not necessarily going on information that we're getting from mm -hmm. any teams or agents or any inside mm -hmm. sources. It's it's who we would pick if we were them. Um, so exactly. Nick and I are constantly evaluating and ranking our top prospects for this draft. Um, so it's who we would pick if we were the general manager in that draft room, that scouting director, combined with kind of some um, tendencies that we've seen from the team. So a lot that has played in to Abrams being linked to the Marlins has to do with the guys they picked last year and them going for upside. Um, so to your point, I think if it, if it comes down to June and the, their draftees from last year are still struggling, it is potential. They could find some perceived safety in a college bat like Stott. Um, for Nick and I, we, we do like Abrams a tick higher than Stott. But they're in the same tier. Like they're, we're, we consider them both top ten picks. So if they want to, if they want to go for a little bit uh, safer pick, I think Stott would potentially fit that profile. He doesn't have a true standout like seventy to eighty grade tool like Abrams does with his speed. Um, and it's also important to note defensively. I think there's a a, a better than average chance that Abrams ends up in center field. Uh, He's he's a good shortstop. He's a decent shortstop, but I've seen him play center field, and I I think the wheels play up more out there. I think they get more value out of him in his athleticism because he runs down balls so well. Um, he's not as fast as like a Billy Hamilton type, but Hamilton was also a prep shortstop who made the move to center field. Uh, so it's easy to kind of envision that similar move for Abrams. Um, I, when I've seen Abrams play center field for USA baseball, 18 and under, and he does, he did that. So Bobby Witt jr. Could play short shortstop. Abrams was pretty instinctual out there and he's just athletic enough that, that he can run down balls in any gap. He got good jumps off the bat. So I think that there's potential that he could go there. So it's not necessarily an apples to apples comparison, but if they are looking for a shortstop, I'm sure Stott would be in play. Well, that's the big thing for me is is the Marlins. I mean, not that you're trying to plan out your future starting nine when you're you know this deep into a rebuild, but when you look at the Marlins' top thirty prospects, none of them really point towards uh, any of them being a starting shortstop for the Marlins in a few years. And I think they need they need that starting shortstop prospect to kind of just be that cornerstone for them because other than Osiris Johnson, who a lot of people think likely won't stay at shortstop, they really don't have right. anyone else. And you had mentioned in your write-up that that Stott is already a pretty steady defender, so I don't think there's any question that he's going to stay at shortstop. The Marlins do have a decent amount of outfield prospects already with Victor Victor Mesa, of course, Connor Scott. You got Monty Harrison. We'll see what happens with Lewis Brinson. So I think a shortstop would be the right pick there. But like you said, if the tools just become too tantalizing for the Marlins to pass up on, it could make sense. But I also wanted to ask you about, I don't want to, like, I don't want people to forget that the Marlins have basically another first round pick yeah. with the com early compensation pick. You have the Marlins taking Hunter Barco, left-handed high school pitcher at 35 in the competitive balance round. He was a guy that people were hyping up to be potentially, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, a mid first round pick when we were going into this this draft cycle, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But now he's fallen back a little bit. 
with some of his issues on the mound with some of his stuff. I think you could probably uh, hit on this a little better than I can, but if I'm not, I think I remember him having some issues with his, uh, with his stuff and people were a little underwhelmed with, with some higher expectations, but uh, is that a guy that you've seen much? And do you think that could be a steal for the Marlins at 35? Yeah, I've seen him a couple times and he's one of these guys who he entered the draft cycle as a really high, highly regarded name and it's due to due to like what happens because th- there are other groups like my there's my my friends over at perfect game have seen this guy they've seen barco and these guys pitch when they're in they're 14 years old 15 years old in other tournaments they're evaluating all the way up i i only start to see them really leading up to their draft year so i knew about barco um because he had a really impressive performance in Jupiter like two years ago, and he was highly regarded as one of the top guys in the draft class. And then the first time I saw him over the summer, the stuff was kind of underwhelming. He was like 88 to 90, uh, maybe touch 91. Uh, the secondary stuff was, was okay. Uh, the command was just not there. Um, he had, he had a good splitter that he would flash. Um, the body language, uh, candidly just wasn't that good on the mound either. Um, and I, I got similar feedback from other people who saw him at other events. I saw him one other time at the Under Armour game at Wrigley Field um, and didn't get a great didn't get a great feel for him then either. Uh, but the stuff reportedly has been better over the, the spring. Uh, the velocity has ticked up a little bit, as has the command. So he, he's kind of climbing up boards again. And again, I, I view this as an upside pick where you're getting someone who at one point was regarded as one of the top prep arms in in the class. And I guess he still is. We're talking about the top six or eight prep prep arms in the class. And he's he's in that conversation. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's why we're seeing him tick up this year. Um, so some of my concerns in the past were like he's this. <laughs> I, it always is kind of a head scratcher when you see someone who's like six four, but throws from like a low three quarters delivery, like to negate that plane. Um, you, you just want him to go a little bit more over the top and work downhill. Uh, Barco doesn't do that. It, it's like a, it's not a Chris Sale delivery, but it's a low three quarter delivery. Um, now that can cre- still create some tough angles when he's busting people and so busting right handed hitters inside, and it it really makes that splitter that split change up he throws a really effective out pitch when it's on. So, but to do that, you need to establish your fastball. And it sounds like that's what he's done a better job of this spring. Well, speaking of, of high level prep arms that are starting to rise a little bit, but actually Carter Stewart dropped. I was going to ask you about Carter Stewart because you have him going next pick to the Rays in the competitive balance. He was selected last year, eighth overall, uh, ends up not signing. And now he's at uh, Eastern Florida junior college, I believe. Uh, yeah. And he's another guy that's, was really high on boards and he's underwhelmed a little bit, right? With, with his ability to spot up and some of his stuff uh, isn't quite as electric as people thought it was uh, before. Would he be a higher upside guy to take in the competitive balance round? If, I mean, the Braves were willing to spend their eighth pick on this guy uh, and we're not even a year removed from that. And he's fallen all the way to 36 is is there more reason for the Marlins to take a shot at him at 35? Uh, and what do you think of, of that pick? Yeah, so so for those that don't know Carter Stewart and the saga behind that, so the Braves took him eighth overall. 
Um, in high school, he was like setting TrackMan records for the best spin rate on a curveball ever recorded. Now that technology is only a few years old, but still, that's not just best ever recorded at the high school level. That's best ever recorded all the way up to the major leagues. So the highest spin rate on a curveball was Carter Stewart at the time he was 18 years old. So he gets picked eighth overall in the physical uh, pops up some troubling medical um, information about his wrist. So your wrist is very important when you're throwing a, a curveball. <laughs> um, so they offered him, I think it was like 40% of what the recommended slot was for that, that deal. And he turned it down. Um taking a gamble on himself and in, instead of going to a four, a four year school that he was committed to, which was Mississippi state, he goes to a junior college so he can be draft eligible again this year. And here, here's where we are. So he enters this season as the top junior college player. Um, but he's just been up and down over the spring. Like sometimes he'll, he'll show flashes of what he showed last year. Um, including that, that devastating curveball. Other times he's just, he's just, it's not there. The, the command isn't there. Uh, the fastball velocity hasn't always been consistent. Sometimes it's down in the low nineties and and not maintaining throughout the start. Um, he has developed a slider more recently that he's, he's been throwing um, in his most recent start. I think before we did this exercise, he looked pretty good again uh, based on what we've heard. So he is kind of a wild card. It, it's extremely risky uh, given the medical and given the up and down performance, but that upside uh, of a potential top 10 pick, like, like he showed last year is still there. And like I said, he's still young. He's 19 years old. Um, so yeah, if, if that fits the Marlins risk profile or anyone else picking in this spot, it would make sense. We took, we sent him to the race because the Rays have like three picks in the first round a large bonus pool uh, and the ability to, to kind of take a, take a risk. But you know, the Marlins fit that too, having, having multiple picks and then an early pick in round two. And how much do you think that wrist has to do? Is it still lingering maybe with, with some of the issues he's having on the mound and with the stuff not being quite as sharp as it was before? And I, I don't know. I, Cause I, I don't even know if it ever was something that bothered him. Um, or is just something that only showed up in the, in the post-draft physical. Um, Cause it, it was not something that any of us ever heard of in the spring leading up to the draft. It was only something that popped up. And sometimes these things pop up in an MRI MRI that are, have never bothered the player. And there's one other thing I wanted to kind of ask you about, cause they don't necessarily have to use that pick on an arm as some of uh, some of the arms have been, and pressing early on in the Marlins system, if that continues to happen through this calendar month, as Braxton Garrett and Trevor Rogers and some of these guys continue to impress uh, at the lower levels, they could use that pick on another bat. Yeah. Who do you think you could see going there? I, th- there's a guy I want to ask you about just because I broadcasted for the uh, NECBL last summer for the Newport Goals, and a guy that uh, played for the team that I broadcasted for, one of the most consistent hitters all summer, was Cody Hosey, and I think he's a oh, really, yeah. really interesting uh, prospect. He was drafted um, because he was draft eligible as a 21-year-old, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was actually selected last year late, uh, opted to obviously return to Tulane, and is having an absolutely absurd year. I think he has 21 home runs already unless he hit one since the last time I checked, which would not be surprising. Uh, and he's hitting over 400. 
he's never done anything like this in the past. I mean, he was really consistent all summer. But if you told me he would have hit 21 home runs and the season's not even going to be over this summer, I would have told you you were crazy. So right. he's obviously a talented guy. Is this just lightning in a bottle, or is he worth a chance at that early at maybe the 35th pick? I, I think he's going to go this high um, or in that range. Now, and if you would have – I'm with you. Like, if you told me entering the season that he was a day one guy, yeah, I would say, yeah, he's potentially he could go at the end of day one. But now he's he's getting first-round consideration because as we get closer and closer to these, the, the draft, teams – you know, it's easy for me, a guy on the internet – even though I've seen these guys and I'm evaluating them and I'm being objective as possible, it's easy for me to roll the dice and, and go for upside. If my job is depending on it as a scouting director, as a GM, I would probably be feeling relative perceived safety in a college bat with a proven track record. And that's what Cody Hosey has done. Like he, he's hitting 400. He's leading the, leading the nation in home runs are tied with JJ Blade. Uh, and Blade is going to go in the first round. So Teams teams get more analytical. He's gonna light up any any analytical metric that you evaluate him by. He's gonna show well. Um, so I I think he, as long as this streak continues and we're, we're only a, what four four or five weeks left in the college baseball season, I do see him going in this range. He's one of these few people's that few people on this this mock draft that that I haven't seen, and it's because we prioritize guys based on where we think they'll be in the class. And he's not a guy who I thought would be that be where he is, uh, but you got to respect what he's done so far. So he's not a guy that we've seen. So this time of year with, with four weeks left, I'm making phone calls and I'm trying to, to see when Tulane comes close to my area uh, where I can go see him or, or get someone that I trust to go see him and get a look for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and watching him this summer, he was one of the most consistent hitters on the on the team I broadcasted for. But the glove is also strong at third base, and uh, he could stick there at third. But even if he couldn't, the Marlins need first base prospects as well. They Since they traded Josh Naylor, there's pretty much no corner infielders in that organization as well. So they're, they're pretty pretty thin in regards to, to infield prospects. So that could be another guy they take a chance on. And I know a lot of people are pushing for the Marlins to take two bats and I wouldn't be shocked, but uh, that, that's what I was really keen on. I really wanted to ask you about Hosey because he's one of those more com- uh, peculiar cases. And you had mentioned in your write-up in the mock draft, you, you mentioned Brent Rooker, a guy who lit the world on fire in his – I think was it his senior year that, that he lit the world on fire? Or was that his junior yeah, year? Yeah, I think senior it was year. his senior. So now he's struggling a little bit. He, he's looking like a guy that might not even make it up. I think he's sitting – low 200s and triple a uh is that something that tends to happen with guys like this that break out late in their college career or uh is is it more of a safer pick um i mean i'm sure we could find examples on either side you know Mm -hmm. andrew benatendi wasn't a guy who entered his his junior year or or, yeah his, his final year in college as a potential top 10 overall pick like he became uh, he just eventually hit him, hit his way there. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, we should have seen this all along. Um, you know, hindsight is 2020. And it's easy for the, the only thing you can do in those scenarios is try to learn from what you did, but not overcorrect and then take that into account for the next draft cycle. And one, one other question I was going to ask you is uh, we know the Marlins have the tendency to like these uh, 
high upside high school guys. Uh, but like we mentioned, if they decide to play it safe at four and they end up, we, we were mentioning more, more college bats at 35. What if they flipped it around here and they end up going with a guy like Stott at four uh, or, or just another college bat at four? Uh, what, are there any high school bats that you like at 35 uh, that could end up being really, really high reward guys? Um, yeah, there's a guy like Tyler Callahan's a guy who I he could potentially get there. He's a high school bat that I really like a lot. Um, he, he, one of the more advanced bats, def, defense is kind of a question mark as to where he's going to, where he's going to play. Um, he, he plays shortstop for his high school team. Um, likely profiles as a, as a third baseman or even a catcher, he's played a little bit of catcher, but because he is so advanced at the plate, trying to develop him as a catcher, I think can, can slow down that bat. Um, so he, he throws right bats left. He's a little short and stocky. He, he would profile well defensively as a catcher. He's got a good arm. He's up to 90 on the mound. I just think the bat's going to going to accelerate his, his development. So he'll probably be like a third baseman, even maybe a first baseman. Um, so if he makes it to the Marlins, I think there's there's a good opportunity that he could be a bat there. Uh, Brett Beatty's another guy. I think we have him going to the Brewers here at, at 28 um, at Lake Travis, uh, Texas. This guy is just he's hitting like he's hitting bombs every other at bat in high school, and that's not an exaggeration. Like everyone thinks Texas high school baseball is Bobby Witt territory. And it is rightly so, but Brett Beatty is having an unbelievable year. Um, the knock on him is that he's going to be 19 by draft day. Um, and, and people tend to, to like those kids who are a little younger in their high school class, like an Osiris Johnson. Uh, but it's tough to ignore what Beatty's done. He might not make it to, to that pick um, at 35, but, he would be a guy if he's available that that team should be trying to scoop up. I think once you get out of the top three, there's a bit of a drop off to the pick at four, uh, and mm-hmm. it's a little unfortunate for the Marlins there at the spot that they got, and just happened to be the the way it is this year. Um, you guys have Adley Rutschman, of course, going first, as I think almost everyone in their world uh, has Adley Rutschman going first. It would be astonishing if he didn't. Uh, Bobby Witt is actually who you have going second, which. Uh, that could be interchangeable with Andrew Vaughn, who I yeah. think is w- paired with Rutschman, one of the most can't-miss prospects we've seen in a while. What are the chances that one of those three guys could fall to four? I think it's a, d- a decent chance. Like, you you never know. Like, I personally don't know who these teams are valuing more. Uh, in my mind, this is a, a clear-cut top three. Um. One of these, one of these college arms who's doing really well, Alec Manoa or Nick Lodolo, could propel themselves up in that area. Um, or, like I said, that someone might find a little more perceived safety in a, in a bat like JJ Blade or, or Hunter Bishop out of Arizona State who are doing re- real well. If those guys can propel themselves above Wit, um, Wit could slide. If someone doesn't like the fact that Andrew Vaughn's like a six foot right-handed first baseman who bats right and throws right he could slide 
Um, I think it'd be crazy because I think I think he's going to mash in pro ball. And I think Bobby Witt, um, people have been questioning Bobby Witt since he was 15 years old and he keeps putting doubters, doubters, proving doubters wrong. Like uh, if there's a question about Bobby Witt, it's it's how well the bat's going to play. And he he went and hit like 500 for Team USA um, with with like five home runs with wood bats against pretty good. Uh, talent from around the country or from from around the around the world um so in my mind these are the top three guys but there's still i would give it maybe a 20 percent chance that one of them makes it out of the top four then you just got to hope as a marlins fan that that the marlins have accounted for that situation and they're ready to to pick them you know everyone should be scouting adley adley rutschman even though they're 90 percent sure that the Orioles are going to take him. Now, I say that with with the caveat that if you're picking, you know, seventh at the Reds, you know he's not going to make it there. But if I have a top four or five pick, I, I make a list of my top four or five guys, and I'm sending cross-checkers and scouting directors there to get as many looks as possible to make sure we're prepared and we have a pref list that, all right, if this guy slides, we are taking him, no questions asked. So hopefully, hopefully the Marlins are doing that or any team picking in the top 10. Absolutely. And like I mentioned before, is first base and shortstop might be two of the biggest organizational needs. And if, if Andrew Vaughn or Bobby Witt could slide to four, I think that's a pipe dream for the Marlins. And I, I was thinking you might say there's no chance. So the fact that you say there's a 20% chance might actually get a lot of listeners excited. But the last yeah. question I'll ask you here, uh, day two guys, are there, are there any sleepers that you think – could end up lighting the world on fire and uh, kind of do a Cody Hosey type of thing, but in pro ball where they might not have had that prospect allure and going into the draft and uh, some guys that you've just personally liked maybe more than others like. Yeah, there's, there's always guys when I, when I'm evaluating players that I like more than I guess the consensus. Um, There's, there's a guy at Campbell University. Well, Campbell University has a first rounder in Seth Johnson. It's a small school in North Carolina. Uh, and, and when you go and scout Seth Johnson, you take a look at their outfielder, Matthew Barefoot. And he's another one of these just – he's a college guy, and all he does is rake. Like, I'm there scouting Johnson, and Johnson did as, as well as I'd expected him to. And I'm like, okay, I heard he's a first rounder. Yep, I think he's a first rounder. And then I see this Matthew Barefoot guy just barreling every single ball that, that comes anywhere near the plate, like not, not missing a pitch in the games that I evaluated Um, and was really impressed with the entire profile. Another guy is Jordan Brewer. He's a, he's a raw junior college transfer uh, to the university of Michigan. Who's like leading the big 10 in all these offensive categories. And no one really saw it coming. Like, I cover uh, Big Ten for for D1 baseball, and we're trying to project out like Michigan's starting lineup as one of the best teams in the Big Ten, and he wasn't in it. And now he's leading the leading the league in a lot of offensive categories. He's this he's he's kind of an unusual profile too. He plays he plays right field. He bats left and throws right. Uh, not a lot of guys have that profile. Um, when batting right handed, he he's like runs. 80 grade uh four four one times down to first base has a plus arm from right field and he's hitting for power 
Uh, he's raw, as you would expect a JUCO transfer his first first full year of D1 baseball. But I think he's going to go in like that fifth round range, and I think whoever gets him is going to get a steal. So you mentioned to me off the air uh, that you guys are going to be coming out with a top draft prospect was coming up. Uh, and so those guys probably wouldn't even be on that list, right? Yeah, I don't think they will. We're going to go 125 men deep. Um, but before the draft, we'll write up all these guys in a draft preview. We'll, we'll, we'll rank each position uh, and we'll go as deep as we possibly can because we've seen a ton of guys. We have we we have a draft video library and this is all the video we've gotten the last year. And there's 400 guys on it so far. It'll be up around 500 by the time the draft happens. And if you're if you're at all interested in the draft, I, I just recommend that you go to this page and you bookmark it because if you're a Marlins fan out there and, and they get to the 10th round, it might not be someone you've heard of. Chances are we've seen them. Chances are we have video on them. Chances are we've we've written them up. Uh, so you can get some information on them. Uh, in our draft library, you can sort it by sort by draft age, by state, by position, by level, high school, junior college, or college. So uh, to me, it's like the best tool if you're interested in the draft. We're going to have links to that on the 125 that we release next week. So uh, if you're interested, check that out. Uh, we really appreciate it at 2080baseball.com. Well, that was the one thing I always like to compliment you guys on is you guys do a great job on a lot of things. But I think that one of the main things that really separates you guys from all of these other sites is is the video you guys provide. I mean, it's it's some of the best video I've seen. Uh, and it really gives you an opportunity to to kind of assess these players on your own from from your own desk or from your own couch, which is really nice. Uh, so are there any other things uh, leading up to the draft now as, as we get closer by day uh, that we can look out for for you guys to do as I'm sure you're going to start ramping up your coverage? Before I let you go here, I wanted to give you a chance to, to let us know what, what you guys might be doing. Yeah, now that we're in the professional baseball season as well, when that minor league baseball has kicked off, we're going to ramp up doing podcasts more frequently at 2080 Baseball so you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your your podcast, um, something that we'll do uh, weekly, where we'll do a draft segment, uh, maybe even get get other guys from the from the industry, guys that we kind of compete with with prospect coverage. But uh, it's always like to pick our, pick the brains of the other people that are out at the fields doing the same stuff that we're doing, because some of them see see things differently, and it's always good to get a different perspective. Absolutely. And that's something we're going to be looking forward to, of course, here uh, at Fist Stripes as we use you guys as a, one of our main resources for a lot of information. And Adam's always been great to have on the show. Uh, well, thank you for, have, for, for coming on, Burke. I might have to have you on after the draft and uh, get your take on some of these picks. Uh, I know you have a busy month ahead of you, so thank you for taking the time to come on here. And uh, uh, if you could let people know, you know, what, where to look out for uh, your Twitter and information and uh, so they can keep up with you. Sure. It's Burke Granger on Twitter, B-U-R-K-E-G-R-A-N-G-E-R. -E -E and you can find all my stuff at 2080baseball and d1baseball.com. Thanks so much, Burke. All right. Thank you.